Hey everybody, my name is Pej. We come on every single Tuesday, right around noontime. I always have special guests in the recovery world. We talk about anything and everything that's recovery related or lack thereof. Welcome to Pej's Recovery Corner. <laughs> <laughs> we're live, we're live on TikTok, we're live on Facebook. We're live, we're live, we're live on Pej's Recovery Corner. Welcome to Pej's Recovery Corner. Today I have my special guest and good friend, Jordan Erling, welcome to the corner. Thanks for having me. You've been waiting for me to say that. Tonight. I have. This is like a long, a few months that we've had this planned out. The coveted corner. The coveted corner. <laughs> we are actually at your own corner, mm -hmm. which is a beautiful living room. This is actually a good spot. We could do this here regularly, mm -hmm. but you work, so it won't happen. <laughs> anyway, so today, uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to have Jordan on here, because he's near and dear to my heart. He's a good man. He's a good man of recovery. Um, I, I want to hear about Jordan's journey of why he got to where he got. But definitely today's um, topic was Rehab Riviera. Yes, sir. From east to west, because mm -hmm. you're from, from Joycey, mm -hmm. and you came to Cali. Um, we'll get to all that in just a little bit. So first and foremost, like I, I want to know from the from the start, who is Jordan? Where did it all start? Well, I was uh, – oh, real quick. We have a Nicolas Cage pillow here, in case you didn't know, <laughs> especially ordered by – it's also made by C. Quinn. Right? <laughs> so this is kind special of – Special cameo. Special, very, very uh, entertaining. Okay, go ahead. So tell me. Well, so I was born in New Jersey, a great year of 1987, and I was born to a pretty normal family. Um, my parents got divorced when I was young. I was about three or four years old when they got divorced. So right away, I felt like I was a little bit different than everybody else. Why? I don't know. I felt like everyone, you know, all my family or all my friends had perfect families. And then here I was, you know, this this child of a, of a broken family. And I felt like I had no one to relate, really. You had brothers? I did. I had two S younger brothers. Any sisters? Uh, one younger sister after my mom got married. So you're the oldest one? I'm the oldest. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you felt different, broken family, and? Yeah, right away, it just kind of felt like it was different. Um and, you know, I, I kind of consider myself a late bloomer because I always knew that drugs and alcohol were bad, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until I was a little bit older, maybe 16, 17 years old, when I really started uh, experimenting with alcohol first. Okay. Um, and then that led to the marijuana. Okay. So 16, 17 in Jersey, what was it like high school era? People were going to high school parties and you guys were drinking? <clears throat> yeah. We went to high school parties. I was actually, um, I remember the first time I ever drank was at a New Year's party. And uh, growing up, I was never like a super popular kid with all the, you know, all the friends or the jocks. Um, growing up, I was kind of a weird kid, a little bit nerdy. And I remember the first time that I drank was at a New Year's party and the entire the entire grade was there, right? And it was the first time I had ever gotten drunk. And it was the first time that I felt like, wow, I'm a part of this group. I'm a part, you know, with my peers. And I finally felt like I was on the same level with them. I was accepted. So people differentiated at first, like growing up, because I, I too, where I was growing up in Utah, the jocks were much different than mm -hmm. us outcasts that were hiding behind the church doing mm -hmm. bad things. Mm -hmm. So you finally felt like you were a part of, and this was what, at a party? Yeah, this was at a party, 16 years old. Okay, 16. Yeah. Well, what did you drink? Was it beer or hard liquor? Uh, probably a little bit of everything, right? Okay. Um, beer, liquor, whatever was going to you know, change that mindset. And, drunk. and as a 16-year-old, how did you obtain the alcohol? Honestly, it was just there um, when I arrived there. I'm not sure how they got it, but when I got there, they had plenty of alcohol. Okay. Yeah. And keg? Was there a keg? Uh, if I remember correctly, it was, it was a while ago, but I, I think there may have been a keg there. Okay. Yeah. And then? 
And then I felt, so I finally felt like, you know, I was accepted by my peers and um, that this was cool. This is what all the cool kids were doing. They were all drinking on every weekend and, and partying. And I finally kind of got mixed into that group of kids that, you know, were, were partying on the weekends, smoke weed all the time, pretty much get into trouble. Okay. And then? Oh, so it's, it's, how, it's how did, sorry. How did your mom feel about all this stuff? My mom didn't really know about it um, until a little bit later. Uh, it's funny though, uh, when I was when I was 17, it was actually the first time I had ever gone to a treatment center. Um, we had on the East Coast, we have what's called a two-hour delay opening, right? So when there's bad weather, they'll delay, they'll delay the opening of the school. Um, and so I show up to school with my friend, and we had a bottle on the back of my car, with a little bit of vodka in it, right? We each took a swig, and and he threw it into the woods. Um, unbeknownst to me, there was a surveyor in the woods who was surveying land for the school. Mm-hmm. So the surveyor brought the bottle over to the principal's office. And I remember I was in criminal justice class of all classes. And they called me down to the, the principal's office and he took out the bottle and he put it on his desk. He goes, what's this? And I had no explanation. And that was the first time I ever went to rehab. I was forced to do six weeks of outpatient rehab in order to graduate high school. And what, did you go to rehab as an adolescent as a result of what the principal required? Like, was this something that they decided with your parents or they told you basically you have an ultimatum. You want to finish at the school. Mm-hmm. You need to go to rehab. Exactly. Yeah. They told me if I had any chance of graduating school that year, not being held back, that I had to complete a treatment center with a certificate. Oh, it was an outpatient? Mm-hmm. Outpatient. Yeah. Outpatient. Mm-hmm. So there was no detox or anything like that that was required? It was no detox. Um, honestly, the the rehab I went to, all it did was pretty much it was like a drug school for me, right? I had learned so much more than I had ever learned in high school going to rehab with all the other people there. Um, and it really just made me want to do drugs more than anything. Did you stay sober during that time of being in the outpatient? I did, yeah, for six weeks. They tested you? Yeah, twice a week, I think. Did you ever fake a test? I did not, no. So you were totally, you were white knuckling it? Yep. You just stayed sober to to just abide by the rules of what they were requiring you to do to finish school? Yeah, correct. Well, I had the um, that looming feeling of not being able to graduate high school on that's just something I didn't want to be a part of. So I knew I had to take it seriously and complete the program to get that certificate. Okay. So you got all these ideas of, of other drugs that you hadn't yet gotten into. Mm-hmm. Um, I see you have a lot of tattoos. Mm-hmm. When did you get your first tattoo? When I turned 18. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, do you feel like you had an identity crisis during that time? Yeah, I definitely did. Um, you know, Going back to what I said earlier, I never really felt like accepted by my peers. Mm-hmm. And um, I would always just try to get in with the in crowd, right? So I felt by drinking and using, I finally found the crowd that I can kind of assimilate myself into. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> so you finished school? Yes. I did graduate high school. Um, I'll tell you what, that six weeks, I was counting down. Because as soon as that day was that I graduated, I smoked weed on the first day. Okay. Yeah. So one treatment center wasn't effective. Obviously, you were an adolescent, and then you smoked weed, and then? Uh, I smoked weed, and things were pretty normal. Uh, I graduated high school. I started working. Um, my Both my parents own companies, so I started working for my father's company doing construction. Not easy stuff, hard labor. Mm-hmm. And um, weed was my next love. Never really big into the alcohol, but I loved smoking weed. I loved having large quantities of weed, showing up to parties, and once again, buying your friendship by smoking you out. You know, I'm bringing all this weed and I'm allowing you to smoke with me. How were you affording to buy? Were you living with your family still? Yeah, at that point, I was still living at home with my mom. Um, so you didn't have rent or anything like that? Nope. 
you were able to buy weed from the job that you'd gotten while mm -hmm. working like a family business. Yep. So, okay. And then? <laughs> so I got, like I said, that was pretty normal for the most part. You know, smoking weed, drinking um, was like, I guess drinking would be like a weekend thing, but I loved smoking weed. I love smoking weed every day. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, I got arrested for having weed on me in New Jersey. They're not as lenient out here as in California. Zero, zero tolerance? Zero tolerance. At yeah. that time? At that time. Now I mean, it's legalized. Yeah, 2005, 2006, something like that. Yeah. So I got arrested. Um, they ended up giving me probation for a year. I got called in one time for the course of an entire year to get drug tested, and they never called me again. So again, no real consequences. Mm -hmm. And then um, at this point, you're what, 18, 19 years old? 19, 20, something like that, yeah. Okay, then what happened? So eventually, um, this town that I grew up in, it's, its name is Long Valley, right? It's farmland, right? Not There's not a lot going on out there. It's, it's you know, farmers, and the kids get bored, right? They eventually the weed wasn't enough right? Right. And I, I remember i was at my friend's house one time and um, he had these oxycontins and i had never heard of oxycontin i, I had heard of oxycontin i've heard of it called as like uh, hillbilly heroin mm. and i was like isn't that that hillbilly heroin and he's like yeah you gotta try this and i was like okay i have nothing else better to do right so i remember snorting that pill and the feeling that overcame me i was like oh my god this is amazing i, I want to feel like this all the time were you scared or afraid that i'm about to snort a pill that i don't even know what's about to happen to me but we're going to crush this up and just go for it yeah i guess i was a little bit hesitant but at that point again kind of the peer pressure i wanted to be accepted into the group of friends and all my other friends were doing it and i was like well i mean they're okay i guess i could give it a shot you know so you snorted and what happened i snorted it i felt amazing and instantly i was hooked uh, i remember that year I'd gotten a big, really big tax return. Mm -hmm. So what does any smart drug addict do? They open up shop, right? I uh, started going down to some sketchy areas, Newark, Elizabeth, Patterson, and um, started buying these pills wholesale and then driving back to my suburban town and selling them. Wholesale from who? You know what? I don't even remember how I met the guy. I just, I knew a guy, right? Or I knew a guy through someone else. Um, and then we'd go buy them for half the price that they would sell retail. And then I would drive back to where I was living. Mm -hmm. And honestly, by the time I was even done, it's a 45 minute drive, they'd all be sold. I do know like in the early 2000s, there were the, there were the Oxy 80s. Mm -hmm. And out here in California, if you knew a certain particular doctor that you would go and see, mm -hmm. you'd go and, and do like a, a, a checkup sort of and, and let them know like what kind of pains you had. Mm -hmm. Those doctors, which they're dirty doctors, yep. they would prescribe you like oxys and back then like the oxy 80s were like the big deal because mm -hmm. a lot of i didn't do i didn't get into oxys but i was tweaking yeah so um often we would find those types of doctors we'd get the oxy 80s and then mm -hmm. all of our heroin buddies like the people that were shooting dope would love those because they could uh you know basically mm -hmm. you know shoot them like yep. you could shoot that stuff and then they, they the oxys obviously changed over a period of time but um so that's how you were obtaining them how long were you hooked on oxys Ooh, that started my journey of my love affair with opiates. Um, so everyone knows the story. You don't get high on your own supply, right? Mm -hmm. But eventually the habit just became too expensive, right? I started taking more and more out of things that I was supposed to be selling to other people. And eventually uh, I was broke. I had no money. And I was in a uh, tumultuous relationship with a female. And you became your own best customer. Exactly. <laughs> and worse. Yeah. Uh, and was it just uh, oxys or was it all kinds of opiates like Vicodin or Norcos or 
anything like that? Well, it's it's funny because originally it was the Oxy 80s, and yeah. then um, during the course of my addiction, they I guess they changed the formula. Yes. So you you couldn't you abuse them. Yeah, yeah, you, you couldn't abuse them as much. So yeah. um, then I went to the 30 milligram Roxy's. Right. Which yeah. eventually became too expensive as well. And was it just were you just using it as a pill? Uh, no, I was crushing it and snorting it. Okay. Yeah. Were you ever a shooter? Um, well, so eventually I was, I never shot pills, but eventually the Roxy cottons became so much money. Um, and all my friends would say, Hey, why don't you just get heroin? It's the same thing. And I said, you know what? I might try that. So eventually went down to Patterson, uh, started meeting these street dealers, extremely dangerous, right? right. Meeting these street dealers and buying heroin for half the price of a, of a Roxy. Right. And typically a lot, I mean, this happens a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that will start off with uh, pills mm -hmm. with opiates, you know, and sometimes they're prescribed by a doctor because they legitimately have some kind of a pain or something like that, mm -hmm. like back pain, back surgery or something like that. And then the next thing you know, because they developed that dependency and they can't get more from their doctor because they're med seeking, mm -hmm. they will then resort to transferring and changing it up and just going straight to heroin. Yep. So the heroin on the East Coast was China White. China White. So yep. it's nothing like on the West Coast where it's mostly black tar. No, not at all. Um, little little baggies. We call them bundles. You get these little bundles. Uh, it was like forty dollars for a bundle, or if you wanted five bundles, it was one hundred and eighty dollars. First time you ever were going to try heroin. Obviously, you were already in that opiate mind state, like where you were addicted to the opiate. So, was there no questions asked? Like, I don't care that this is heroin. I just need something that's going to make me feel like the oxys do. Pretty much. I mean, there was a little bit of a stigma attached to heroin because you hear it's the worst of the worst, right? right? Um, but once I had tried it and uh, I finally got that effect that I was looking for, I was like, oh, it's exactly like the pill. The pill is just a, made in a lab. So you're just like, perfect. Yeah, exactly. This is what I need. Exactly, for half the price. And you were snorting it or smoking it? I started by snorting it, um, and eventually I just couldn't it – was, it was not doing the trick for me. And I remember some, some guy that I had met that brought me down to Patterson was actually the, the person that introduced me to needles. So you got the needles. Mm -hmm. First time you were ever going to use a needle, how'd that make you – like, what did you think right then? Like, did you think, oh, my God, I'm about to stick a needle in my body? Yeah, it was a little bit scary because, you know, obviously this is something that's a medical professional should be doing, right? right. Um, but honestly, once once you do it a couple times, it was pretty easy to get the hang of. Uh, the hang of uh, – the, the biggest thing to me was hiding my stuff, right? Because at this point I was still living at home, so – uh, I would come up with very creative ways of how to hide, how to hide needles because I knew if my mom had come in my room, she'd find them and she'd freak out. So okay, that, that's that brings me to this. So you're living at home with your mom still. Mm -hmm. How was your appearance? Like, could she not oh. tell that you looked like you're on drugs? Oh yeah, she knew. How she old were you at this point? Probably 23, 24, okay. something like that. She knew. Uh, the thing she would say to me all the time is that you look gray. She said her my skin would look pale. And what she what would she say? Like, are you high? Yeah. She, she said, "What's going on?" She knew that you know I'd come home at late late times of night, or I would leave in the middle of the night, and um, she knew what was going on. She just the thing was she had never dealt with that. I'm the firstborn, right? So she had no idea how to deal with that. Um, and I just I took advantage of it. I walked all over her. Did you share needles with people? I have. Yeah. Did you catch anything? Uh, thankfully, no. I've never caught anything. You're very yeah. lucky. Yeah. Very lucky. Usually, typically, most of the people that I talk to that were sharing needles at any given time, mm -hmm. they develop you know, hepatitis C, yeah. sometimes HIV, many different types of diseases that are transmitted 
from the sharing of needles. So you're very lucky to actually cannonball. That was my biggest fear was hepatitis. So what happened then? Did you start, you ended up uh, going to treatment? Like what, what happened? Did mom find out that your my kid's high? Yeah. So um, eventually one thing led to another. I ended up moving out of my house, right? Because they kicked me out. She finally showed me some hard love. Um, she kicked me out. Mid twenties? Yeah. I got an apartment. Um, and then. How'd you afford to get an apartment as a heroin addict? I had a girlfriend at the time and uh, she had a job. I had a job. So we had enough scraped together to get an apartment. In Jersey? In New Jersey. Yeah. So we got an apartment together and I was there for maybe eight, nine months. Eventually I got so behind on back rent. Um, that they were threatening eviction. And that's when I went back to my mom and dad and said, hey, I have a problem, I need to go to treatment. And that was my first uh, was my first bout with uh, in, inpatient rehab. Inpatient rehab. So you'd already been to outpatient, mm-hmm. you got all the information you needed, mm-hmm. now you're going back to rehab. Yep. Rehab in Jersey? Rehab in New Jersey, yeah. It was in uh, South Jersey, in the middle of nowhere. Um, but the thing was, it was only two weeks. It wasn't enough time. I remember uh, my two weeks was up and my parents wanted me to stay another two weeks, but me, you know, with my ego, I said, no, I'm good. I got this. I don't want to do drugs anymore. Right. I've been I've been clean two weeks. What a trip that the rehab would only offer two weeks of services. Mm-hmm. Did you go on your insurance or did you yeah. or did your parents pay? Yeah, I went on insurance. Insurance. Yeah. Two weeks. Two weeks. So what happened? So I ended up leaving. Um, I was okay for a little bit when I, when I came out, but you know how the story goes. Eventually, I want to smoke weed. Start smoking weed, and before you know it, I'm right back into the opiates. And where were you living? At that point, they had bailed me out. Um, so they had got me the, the apartment back. They helped me catch up on my back rent. Um, well, good enabling parents. Yeah, but eventually. They're thinking my son went to rehab for two weeks. He's cured. Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's just save him. Yep. Well, okay. they bailed me out, mm-hmm. and eventually I got evicted. Got evicted from there after how long? Probably another three or four months. Okay. Yeah. So now you're you know, like probably 26, mm-hmm. almost. Yep. Um, then what? So at that point, I was hopping from place to place, right? We hopping got evicted from, from from homes. Homes, yeah. Okay. So we left. We got evicted from the first place. Lived in another room for rent. Left that place. Went to another place. We're just hopping from place to place until the bills catch up with us. Right? With the girlfriend. With the girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, it all came to a head though. Um, she would she would work at a hospital, right? And she um, she was the courier for the hospital, so she would take the bank deposit to the bank. And we figured out one day that if she took money from the bank deposit from the hospital, uh, maybe like two or three days before her paycheck, we could afford to go down to Patterson, pick up drugs, come back, and then when she got paid in like two days, she could just put the money back and deposit it in the bank or the uh, hospital with notes. So that's what we were doing. That was our little scheme. That's some drug addict shit. Yeah. yeah. So 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 obviously she was a drug user too. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. she shooting dope too? Yeah. Both of you guys what a, together. Romantic love, love right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that drug induced uh, you know, heroin shit. Yeah. Loves that. Romanticized. Okay, so then um then what happened? So uh it all came to a head one night when we were doing that. Um, we went to Patterson and at this point I was the drug dealer. I would pick up the stuff at Patterson and there were people that lived in the, sub- the suburbs, right. That didn't want to risk going to the, the hood pretty much to go pick it up. So yeah. I'd pick some up, I'd come back, I'd sell to them for a premium. So I'd get my stuff for cheaper. And that's what we were doing. We went to Patterson, we went and picked up, um, on the way back, we stopped in a parking lot to get our fix. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, there was a undercover cop sitting across the parking lot, watching our entire, everything we were doing. So as soon as I'm about to get my fix, he pulls up, 
pulls me out of the car. I get arrested. She blames everything on me. And before you know it, I'm in jail. And obviously, because it was a zero tolerance state at the time, mm -hmm. to be mingling or using or obtaining or transporting, especially heroin. Large quantities, that, yeah. Oh, large quantities. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah. Okay. So, and she, she ratted you out. She ratted me out. Yeah. Um, I had, I think, five grams of heroin, a quarter ounce of weed, um, baggies, scales, paraphernalia, you name it. I think my bail was set at $35,000 with no 10% option. How long were you in jail? Thankfully, I was only in jail for a night. Um, I called my mom, who was the only person who's never given up on me, and she realized that, like, hey, you need to make a change. Something you're doing is not working. And uh, that's when I decided I need to get out of New Jersey because all the places I know in New Jersey just remind me of using. And so thankfully the court case, uh, the charges were dropped to a uh, what's called a loitering in a known drug area, mm -hmm. right? And that's when I moved out here to California. So you moved out to California to live in California or did you go to treatment? So it's interesting. I went to a detox and I went straight to a sober living. And I had no idea what the sober living thing was. This was in 2014. So sober livings are a very California thing. I've never heard of that. Halfway houses. I yeah, think. on the East Coast, it's halfway houses and Oxford houses and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, sober living's out here. So you went to one where? Um, in San Diego County, Encinitas. And it was, from what I remember you telling me, it was somewhat of a structured house. Yes, it was extremely structured. Um, we wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning every day. We'd have a devotional as a house. They told me I had two weeks to get a job. We'd go to an AA meeting uh, Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. as a house. So you're going to 12-step meetings? Correct, yeah. I How had, long were you in that house? Three months. And then? So after I left that house, uh, it was my first taste of AA. It was my first taste of working the steps because they pretty much made me get a sponsor, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to get a sponsor, started working the steps, and I don't remember if I got to 12. I got pretty close to 12. I know I'd gotten to nine. Um, and at three months, once again, me in my head, I said, hey, I got this. I'm good to go. I've got three months of sobriety, right? Mm -hmm. I can get my own place. Um, so I ended up moving out of that house with one of my roommates from the sober living, which was a terrible idea. Okay. So and we don't need to go into a long, drawn-out thing of what all the different places you went to. All mm -hmm. I know is that I met you along the way. Mm -hmm. I How old are you now? 34. You're 34. Mm -hmm. So... Did you ever move back to Jersey or did you stay in California from the time you got to California? From the time I got to California in 2014, I never desired to move back to New Jersey. I visit, but I don't want to move back there. All right. So so in 2014, 2015, something started to happen mm -hmm. in the treatment uh, in the treatment setting. You know, there was uh, people, obviously, that were treatment hopping. Mm-hmm. And you were a treatment hopper. Yes. You hopped around from place to place. You went to treatment centers and, and sober livings. And my joke to you is always, oh, yeah, Jordan has done the full Rehab Riviera tour mm -hmm. of Southern California. Yeah. And I think it went from all the way from San Diego to Orange County to L.A. back to Orange County. Yep. And I met you down in Orange County. Mm -hmm. uh, we won't talk about where we met. We just met. Mm -hmm. We met in recovery circles. Mm -hmm. right? And um, and I, I know that, especially in 2015, 2016, it had become the wild, wild west. There was a lot of different people that weren't just hopping, mm -hmm. but there was body brokers that were placing people in treatment centers, mm -hmm. and they were um, enticing them with certain things. Mm -hmm. They would basically tell them, "Go to the center since you're newly, you know, newly used. Like mm -hmm. you just got done using. 
we'll put you in this detox and residential, stay in touch with me. And then afterwards, if it doesn't work out, I got a better place for you. I'll just, you stay in touch with me all the way up to, mm -hmm. did you get caught up in that game? Thankfully, I've actually never got caught up in the game. Uh, I've had several offers. So I'd be at several treatment centers where I've heard about it and, you know, getting paid to go to treatment, um, treatment center to treatment center. And, it's, and, for, and for a guy like you that wasn't ready to stay completely sober, mm -hmm. that didn't sound like something you wanted to do? It just sounded very illegal. It sounded sketchy to me. And, yeah. you know, it's funny for someone that Not does, that you were living the most legal yeah, lifestyle. I was going to say, for someone that does a lot of illegal things, you would think I'd hop right on that. Yeah. But, um, Seriously, Jordan, like I'm surprised you did not do that. I think you have – sometimes I believe even when we're in the depths and throes of our disease, mm -hmm. we sometimes have some like this intuition that this just doesn't feel right. Yeah. Like this this right here could get me in trouble. Yeah. So that's probably like what, what I would imagine what you would avoid. Because at the time it wasn't totally illegal mm -hmm. to uh, for somebody to accept money to put someone in treatment, let alone for somebody to um, – to give someone money. Yep. Not yet. Yep. Until 2018. Mm -hmm. That's when the laws changed. Mm -hmm. So then it became you cannot uh, purchase clients or mm -hmm. or body broker or or, or uh, human traffic. Yeah. You can't do that. Um, it became an actual law, like uh, you know, ECRA. I believe mm -hmm. it was called the ECRA law. And uh, once it was uh, put into place, I think Trump had passed this bill that um, if anybody is caught doing that, then you know. So then the feds got involved, mm -hmm. and there's obviously tasks for, like forces that would investigate. Um, I think that uh, I've talked to a lot of the, the people that work in those task forces. Mm -hmm. Their hands are full because yeah. there's a lot of people that were hopping around. During that time, there were so many treatment hoppers. You were more of a traditional treatment hopper that was just not ready to get sober mm -hmm. and going from center to center to, to basically – was it all insurance? Yeah, it was mostly Mil all Milk the mother's insurance. Mm -hmm. But – but how I thought at the age of 26, your insurance runs out on your parents' policy. Uh, my mom paid for my own insurance because she she wanted me to get sober. And I think part of the reason why I didn't get engaged in the treatment hopping thing is deep down, I, I did want to get sober. And, right. and I knew that if I got mixed up in that kind of thing, my mother would probably be devastated. So there was a part of you that wanted to get sober. Mm -hmm. The only problem is, is your, what we'll call it a disease, your ego, your mm -hmm. illness, your mental illness was so powerful mm -hmm. that during your process of going from place to place to place, uh, you may walk in with an attitude or an idea of, I want to get sober, but then you get in there and next thing you know, you have some romanticizing stories of how you used to shoot dope or do yeah. drugs. So in your journey of hopping from place to place to place, Mm -hmm. Obviously, in between, you were relapsing a lot, right? Of course. And you were shooting dope out here in California? Uh, I did shoot dope a couple times. Um, it wasn't really till I was out here that I was introduced to the black tar heroin. Uh -huh. And um, I prefer to smoke the black tar heroin, but I did shoot it a couple times as well. Okay. And then, obviously, uh, at the time, I don't think meth was really a big thing in your neck of the woods on the East Coast, mm -hmm. except for in some communities. Definitely. Yeah. In the gay community, meth has been around on the East Coast for a long time. Yeah. People just don't know, right? Mm -hmm. But when you got out here, you had a taste of meth, you, 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 didn't you? Yeah, I actually um, ended up dating another girl who introduced me to meth. And again, whole stigma attached to it, right? Like, oh, meth is a big bad thing. Uh, and I remember trying it and I was like, wow, this allows me to stay up longer to do more heroin. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. So I met you when you were how old, like late 20s? Uh, 30. Yeah. 30. Yeah. Okay. And how long are you sober now? A little more than three and a half years. Three and a half years. Yeah. So when I met you, I remember you asked for assistance. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, I, I, we became friends, mm -hmm. and we we I tried to show you some assistance, mm -hmm. but you weren't done. Mm -hmm. You went on another run. Yep. Right. You were already in a center. Yep. And um, how long did that run last? That was a couple days. Yeah. My uh, my biggest downfall is females, right? If I just see a cute girl and you know she's smoking weed or offers me drugs, I, I was powerless. I was powerless to say no. Okay. So how long you were out for? Like a few months or? Um, thankfully, only a couple days. I only went out a couple days because the treatment center uh, was drug testing me so constantly. So oh, they it was ended while up, you were in treatment. It was while I was in treatment. Yeah, and I was fully expecting them to kick me out, but they actually gave me a second chance, was which was when I was like, hey, I should take this serious. They're giving yeah. me a second chance. So at this point, you were thirty years old. Like mm -hmm. I, you're probably thinking, you know, I'm not that young little punk that's not a spring chicken <laughs> right yeah. I, i'm getting a little bit older yeah um so then you got sober mm -hmm. what made you what what exactly was it that make made you make the absolute decision that i want to get sober from here on out? well i mean a couple of the reasons that you just listed right i was 30 years old you know i'm not a young kid in his 20s anymore living recklessly um and i feel like a, a part of it was for my mom you know, throughout the entire entirety of my using, she was the only person who didn't give up on me. And you know, I want to make her proud. And I know your mom. Yeah. She's a good lady. Yeah. She gets to have her son back. Exactly. It's very sad that there's so many mothers and fathers out there whose kids are, they've, you know, they, that they get to watch their kid grow up and then they resort to mm -hmm. intravenously shooting stuff that will kill them right away, even smoking it. Mm -hmm. Did you ever do fentanyl? I never sought out fentanyl. Um, I'm sure it's been in stuff mixed with stuff that I had, sure. but uh, I never went out with the sole purpose of finding fentanyl. Especially during that time, right before you got sober, if you were doing heroin, mm -hmm. more often than none, it was laced with fentanyl. Yeah. Um, obviously, people want to make it more potent and more powerful. Mm -hmm. um, but you made this decision. You got sober, and then you stayed sober. And uh, what did you do? You were still in, in, in rehab. Mm -hmm. After rehab, what did you do? So after I went to treatment, I went to a sober living house. Um, sober living house was a little bit questionable, some of the characters in there. Um, but I had the, I had my program behind me. You it know, was I, less structured than the place in San Diego. Very less structured, yeah. And it, just some questionable, questionable characters. I mean, they all, they all had good intent. But, um, for example, when some people were, were relapsing, they would allow it or they would allow people to act in ways that, I guess, wasn't really congruent with sober living, so to speak. Um, but I had my program, right? Uh, my feet had been trained. I would go to meetings. I would read the big book. I would work with others. Fellowship. Fellowship mm -hmm. was used for me. And uh, when you, how long were you in sober living? I was in sober living for the place that I went to after treatment was maybe two or three months. And then I ended up having an opportunity to be a assistant house manager of the sober living. So I did that. Never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. Taught me a lot about patience. <laughs> And then after uh, you were assistant house manager, how long did it take until you decided you wanted to branch off and go do something different? So I hit about 18 months of sobriety, and that's when I left that sober living job. So I did that for a little more than a year. Um, did you work in treatment? I worked in treatment for a brief amount of time. Uh, the treatment center I worked at, uh, it, didn't, it didn't vibe with me because I, I saw a lot of people doing the body brokering thing mm -hmm. or the treatment hopping thing, and I felt like my efforts were being wasted because these people don't care anything about what I have to say. They're, they're just here to make money. Yeah. There's a stepping stone yeah. 
to the underbelly of the beast. Exactly. Not that they're not already living there. Mm -hmm. Now, after that, did you work? Did you do student loans? Yeah, I did do student Two, loans. Student loans is a typical job that a lot of newly sober people get to help do what? What oh, do they do? What's what does it encompass? It, it's it's a student loan uh, restructuring program. Um, pretty much, you make a commission on every sale that you make. But if you understand how the industry works, you're really kind of just screwing these people out of their money. Mm -hmm. Did the place that you worked at get raided? Yeah, eventually they did. Not while I was there, but mm -hmm. yeah, so the they, FBI raided it. So sometimes they get raided. Yeah. So it's a whole other uh, industry that <laughs> that brings a lot of newly sober people in. That are it's sort of like a boiler room. Yeah. Like Wolf of Wall Street. Like you got it. Like. Exactly. How many sales? You got your number at the top here. Exactly. So, so that did it mess with your emotions, with your program, with the way that you felt in the program? You know, it's funny. When I first started working there, I was really good at it. And I feel like that's because I didn't understand really what I was doing. I, I honestly, genuinely thought I was helping people. But the longer I was there, you know, a month, two months, I realized that I really wasn't helping these people and that I was just kind of just ripping them off of their money. And that did not set well with me. Sort of selling your soul to the devil. Mm -hmm. Did you hear that? Some of you guys, I'm telling you. <laughs> you know who you are. I'm going to tell them later on to watch this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were doing that, and then you got a, a, a much better job, and now you're very comfortable in your job. And Yeah, I've actually been at my job for two years. I work for a technology company in Irvine. Uh, I love my job. I love the people I work with. I love going to work every day. And um uh, I admire people that can work in the treatment industry. It's just something that wasn't for me because it was very, it was very taxing. Right, it can take a toll on you for yeah. sure. There's, I think it takes a special type of person to be able to mm -hmm. to work in it for an extensive amount of time. Yeah, and not burn out. And I've I've met people that are amazing at it. Right, right. it's like they 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 were born to do this job. It's right. just that's wasn't wasn't my path. So, and you live with a bunch of sober men, mm -hmm. and you're comfortable in your skin for real. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I'm comfortable. Um, my life is pretty good today. You know, uh, I I by no means have like a, a yacht or like a supercar, right? But I have a pretty cool job, a pretty cool house, and a, an amazing group of men. Uh, the fellowship, like I said, was a huge aspect of me getting sober. And you built your mother's trust back for you. Mm -hmm. I think that counts more than a yacht. Yeah. Or a supercar. Yeah, it's amazing that she, uh, we can have conversations now. She can call me just to talk. Or um, that that trust is something that's invaluable. You know, that's something that money can't buy. Does the thought of using or drinking cross your mind? It has before. Um, in the past, definitely. Uh, I remember every time I – sometimes I'll smell weed, right? And I'll remember like, oh, I said good sticky sticky, right? Yeah. And I'll, I'll remember smoking weed, but the difference is, now is that I can – I can play the tape through, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to smoke some weed, and then what's going to happen? I'm going to you know, watch TV, eat some snacks, fall asleep, and probably feel like shit tomorrow, you know, instead of just for what, this hour or two-hour high? It's, mm -hmm. To me, it's not worth it. I can actually view the whole tape in my head versus just that one benefit. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. And um, soon you're going to Florida? Yeah, I'm actually going to visit my family. I'm very excited to see them. Okay, and I'm yeah. sure they're excited to see you too. Yeah. They have their son as a whole human being. Mm -hmm. That matters a lot. Mm -hmm. it matters a lot. 
Well, it was good to have you on on the corner today. The corner. Recovery corner. I like that you're actually in the corner too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like to be in the corner. Um, is there anything you want to say to anybody out there that might be suffering with drugs or alcohol? Uh, yeah, I think you should give sobriety a chance, right? Um, take it from someone who has gone to 17, 18 detoxes and treatment centers. Uh, this is someone who never wanted to work a program, never wanted to be sober. Uh, the life I have, I wouldn't trade for anything. Well, it's all because of this program that I work and, uh, and just being sober is amazing. You know, you get your life back and you can work on things that make you a better person. I, I love reading books. I'm into photography now. Um, you know, I try to stay healthy. I go to the gym. All things that just make me a better person. And it's all a result of, you know, just stop stopped using substances, alcohol, drugs. And um, I, I don't think I, I ever want to turn back. I, I love my life. In other words, you've become the human being that you were meant to be rather mm -hmm. than the facade that you were caught up in. Exactly. Total facade lifestyle. Yeah. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you all for tuning in, and we love you very much, and next week we'll be back on Pesci's Recovery Corner.